according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn to Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 13 through 20. The longest development of this comes in Matthew 16. The parallels in Mark and Luke are highly abbreviated. Mark 8, verses 27 through 30, and Luke 9, verses 18 through 21. We will reference those passages as correlating references or cross-references, but the uh, bulk of our study will come out of Matthew 16. Matthew 16:13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, that is the confession, the statement he just made, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We've got a lot of teaching to deal with on this. We won't get to it today, but just keep in mind, in the Wednesdays ahead, we're going to do some work on keys. We're going to do some work on the nature of the church. And uh, were the keys limited to Peter himself personally? Or are the keys the entrusted responsibility of the bride? Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. We'll have to pay attention to the verb tenses there to uh, truly appreciate what's taking place. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And that bothers a lot of people. We'll handle that as well. All right, before we do any of this, let's take time for silent prayer. Providing you a confession opportunity to be restored to fellowship if carnality is a present Uh, problem, but also to set aside distractions and ask the Father for teachability. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning to assemble together. We thank you for the freedom in our land to... um, have the doors open and a sign out front and a public uh, gathering place by which we welcome uh, any and all to come in and be blessed by the teaching ministry of your word. We uh, ask for that hand of blessing today as we uh, turn our attention on the things above. We pray, Father, that the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit would be alive and powerful. We know the word is alive and powerful. We pray that uh, all things done today would be done for the glory of our Savior. And we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, Peter's Great Confession, episode 46 in the Galilean ministry. And uh, geographically, this is back to the eastern shore again, the northeast shore, Caesarea Philippi. There were a number of Caesareas, uh, cities that were built and dedicated to the glory of Caesar. And uh, there was Caesarea Maritima, uh, Maritima, or Maritama was the one on the coast on the Mediterranean shore uh, that Herod uh, built lavishly, made it a regional capital. And uh, 
is really where uh, the Roman, the seat of Roman government, Roman power was. Uh, Jerusalem was the seat of Jewish power, where the Sanhedrin was located, and where uh, the Romans maintained a garrison, maintained a police force, uh, military detachment to uh, to keep order in the Jewish capital. Well, this is a different Caesarea. This is Caesarea uh, Philippi in the northeast region. Uh, it was not under Herod uh, the Tetrarch's domain. It was under uh, Herod Philip's reign. Uh, Domain after the death of Herod the Great and his descendants uh, had the territory all broken up. Anyway, we've done geography studies in the past, uh, just reminding ourselves that we've had a back and forth, back and forth pattern, uh, left and right, left and right, uh, across the Sea of Galilee in about the last eight or ten episodes, and uh, this one is now firmly back on the northeastern shore. The Lord tests his disciples. This uh, confession episode is a test. It is an evaluation. It is the responsibility of spiritual leaders to test and evaluate those that are under their training. And uh, this is a part of the Lord's evaluation. He always made himself available for the disciples to ask questions of him. He also took occasion to turn it around and ask questions of them. And when the disciples are asking him questions, it's instructive, it's learning, they want information, they want to grow. When Jesus is asking them questions, it's not for his information, it's not for his growth, it's not that he's learning, it's that he is testing. He is the authority and he is testing the disciples. So he tests his disciples with a two-part question. Remember, when the Lord tests, it's always for approval. It is always the Dokimazo evaluation testing. And he is testing for approval, and he is able to find approval when Peter gives the biblical answer, when Peter gives the legitimate answer, and he is able to celebrate, and they have fellowship over Peter's answer. They fellowship together in sharing the Lord's excitement when he says, Blessed are you, happy are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It is a celebration in uh, recognition of how the Father has provided the growth. And it is a true blessing. As uh, John himself would say later on in Second John and Third John, that I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. And the Lord has tremendous uh, pride, integral pride, godly pride, in, uh, at the growth of his disciples up to this point. So it is a test. It is a two-part question. He's going to ask, first of all, what the public opinion is, what the world viewpoint is, and we'll describe that. And then he follows it up with, but who do you say that I am? And it really forms the core of the world we live in today when we have such um, deceit that's out there, such false views out there on who Jesus was. And uh, it almost makes you want to turn your stomach and puke on somebody when they tell you that, oh, Jesus was a fine moral person or he was a good teacher or he was, uh, you know, what have you. They want to call him a good person, a moral person, but they deny that he was God the Son, the Word made flesh, the uh, Savior, kinsman, Redeemer of all humanity. They want to say, well, he was a good teacher like Muhammad or like uh, Buddha or like Confucius or like any of these other guys, and uh, they lower him down to the level of simply a mere man. Uh, and uh, in, in the blasphemy of doing that, they are guilty of what this passage describes, failing to identify the unique person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't understand the unique person, how can you accept the unique work? How can you receive the unique salvation? 
So this chapter becomes critical, not just for you and I on an edification basis, but hopefully on a motivational basis for us in giving the gospel to this lost and dying world. We may have to stop and take that extra step before presenting the gospel in order to present the Savior, in order to, de- to defend and describe the unique person of Jesus Christ before we can uh, describe the unique work of Jesus Christ. All right. So the two parts. First of all, he says, what is the understanding of the people? What is the understanding of the people? Who do people, who do anthropoi say that the Son of Man is? What is the understanding of hoi anthropoi, the people? Now this is actually quite extraordinary. I was going to give you a list. I have Libronics running, so I can do that here in a moment. the use of the term anthropoi is, is remarkable for the fact that it's not the one you would expect. You would expect, you know, who do the people say? And you would expect the, the crowds, maybe, the multitudes, the akloi, the crowds. He's not asking about the crowds. Or people in general, laos, or laoi in the plural. Uh, or maybe the poloi, the hoi poloi, the multitudes. Or maybe another such term, but anthropos in the plural, anthropoi. It stresses people, but it stresses people in terms of their humanity, the realm of humanity. Who do the human beings say that I am? All right? And, and it may be kind of goofy for us to, to quote it like that because we're so used to, in English, who do people say that the Son of Man is, or who do the people say that I am. But let's go ahead and use humanity rather than people because that's what distinguishes anthropoi from laoi or uh, poloi or ethnoi or any of these other terms that could be used. If you're going to find a term for person, there are several that are available to you. And this is a case where we're doing a word study, not of a word that's used, but of words that are not used. Ever think about that? So, uh, anyway, we can pull up uh, Strong's, um, enhance Strong's lexicon. And if we just pull up words for people, of course, we're going to be given Hebrew words and Greek words. But uh, demos. Just jot some of these down, just for your own curiosity's sake. Demos, D-E-M-O-S. Is that too small? Heard of democracy, right? Power of the people. People authority. So demos is a Greek word for people. It is found four times in the Greek New Testament. Referencing the people, the mass of people assembled in a public place. You might think that, uh, that this was a term that the Lord might have used here. Who do the people, the citizens, the population at large, the, the demos or plural demoi, say that I am? That's not the word that he used. All right. Uh, another term. Ethnos. Ethnos. Where we get in English, what English word do you think comes from ethnos? Ethnicity or ethnic. That's right. It refers to a people, but it speaks of a people group or a kind of people. All right. And so it can be rendered people or it could be rendered nation, could be rendered multitude. References a, uh, a multitude, whether men or beasts, associated or living together. Company, troop, or swarm. I mean, we don't tend to think of people as a swarm, I guess, unless you have lots of children or something. Uh, But it it could refer to the human race. It could refer to a specific race, nation, people, or group. would be an ethnos. And the plural would be ethnoi. 
In the Old Testament, it referenced, uh, it was a term for Gentiles. It was just the nations other than the Jewish nation. You had the Jewish nation, which truly was a nation. The nation of Israel was an ethnos, but they never called themselves that. Because they weren't simply a nation. They were God's people. Everybody else that wasn't them were nations. All right? Just to be strictly clear on that. All right? So we have demos, we have ethnos. We have demographics, right? And we have ethnographics, I guess. Ethnography. All right, laos. This is the one I was sure we were going to find. When he said, who do the people think I am? I opened up my New Testament. I thought, okay, we're going to see... Laoi in the plural. We didn't. We saw anthropoi instead. Laos. Primary word used 143 times in the New Testament. Translated as people. All 143 times. References a people, a people group, a tribe, a nation. All those who are of the same stock and language. Remember the idea, our modern understanding of race in terms of skin color and in terms of other uh, character tra- physical character traits is really a rather recent and modern view it has the, the ancient world had no such consideration. The ancient world considered a people group in terms of its culture and language, um, the, interrelation, uh, the interrelationship in marriage contracts and so forth. They uh, did not have a, a skin color preoccupation like we have today. And then uh, I, thought I saw one more. Aklas. Aklas. From a derivative uh, of another term, but used 175 times. 82 of those times, Oklos has rendered people. 79 times it's rendered multitude. And it does speak of a large number. A crowd, a collection of people, a multitude of men who have flocked together, and so forth. I would have expected Oklos here, perhaps. Who do the crowds say that the Son of Man is? Quite often, Oklos was in contrast with Methetes. You had the crowds, you had the disciples. And he would feed the disciples, he would also feed the crowds. He would teach the disciples, he would feed the crowds. So, uh, Oklos would be a term, 3793, that I would expect to see. Notice, nowhere in here is Anthropos listed as a Greek word for people. If we go to... Anthropos. Number 444 is the Strong's Index. It's used 559 times. 552 of those times is translated as man or men, singular and plural. It does speak of a human being, whether male or female. We are all anthropoi. Uh, it does not specifically limit to the male gender. That's a different term. That's onair. That's not anthropos. So uh, we are all anthropoi. But anthropos is not rendered people. It's a term that the Strong's Index calls man. All right, so synonyms then. Strong's does a good job here, I think, with synonyms. All right, work with me here. See entry 5832. All right, doesn't want to work with me. All right, and this draws just a little contrast between Demos and Laos. Uh, in classical Greek, we're talking about Homer, uh, the, the poets, the philosophers. In classical Greek, Demos denotes the people as organized into a body politic. And Laos 
uh, was used for an unorganized people at large. And that's how they drew a distinction between demos and laos. If they were organized, uh, then you could refer to people as demos. If it was just people at large that weren't structured together politically, then, then it would use laos. In biblical Greek, demos uh, had an application for the chosen people of God, where you are a chosen people. And uh, laos was used for people of a heathen city. In a contrast there. Anyway, a little work by Strong when he did contrast between the two. Another one was Trench, who did synonyms for the New Testament. These are just uh, Richard Shevenick's Trench, R.C. Trench. If, if you happen to find these at half-price books, or you happen to find a resource where you can get a Strong's or get a Trench, these are uh, definitely tools that will be worth your while. All right, so his first question is, what is the understanding of the people? His second question is, what is your understanding? What is your understanding? So vital. Absolutely vital. In fact, if, uh, <laughs> if you have children in uh, a government educational facility, you have to do a lot of this. Uh, what does uh, your teacher say is uh, appropriate uh, or what is your, where does your teacher say we came from? What does your teacher say is the origin of the universe? What do you say is the origin of the universe? What does your government educational facility tell you is proper uh, moral behavior? What do you say? <laughs> and ultimately, when you ask what do you say, you're asking what is God's value reflected in your own norms and standards? So what is your understanding? The contrast is a strong contrast designed to demonstrate the value of divine viewpoint and the worthlessness of public opinion based on human viewpoint. The contrast between what does the world say and what do you say? The contrast is a strong contrast designed to demonstrate the value, and it is an infinite value, of divine viewpoint and the worthlessness of public opinion based on human viewpoint. And this is an exercise we want to go to again and again and again and again. There will be every facet of our lives that we'll have to evaluate. Um, men and women alike, adults, children alike, in terms of what do you pursue uh, as a vocation, perhaps? Are you in a worthwhile line of work? What does the world say about your chosen career? But what do you say? What does God say? Because if you're in the will of God and you're in the line of work that he would have for you to do, why would you want to be anywhere else? Now, if the world mocks it or scorns it, and yet you know you're in the will of God, does that become a, does that become a test? Oftentimes, uh, housewives, for example, are, are demeaned for being, oh, you're, 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 not fulfilling your potential. That's right. Oh, you're just a housewife. Come on. You could, uh, you know, what about your education? What about your career? What about your, your uh, sense of worth? And so on and so forth. And the world's message is that if you don't have that, you're worthless. See? And we recognize that some do, some uh, that the Lord leads some to have careers and others not to, and that's as unto the Lord. What are you led to do? I thought that the, uh, the neatest blessing back when... Ralph Brown was the pastor. We had several that were homeschooling parents. Several were public schooling parents. Several were uh, uh, private school, Christian school parents. 
And if there was ever a whiff of any kind of legalism or judgmental attitude or any kind of thing that somehow, you know, this is superior and if you, you know, if you send your children to the government indoctrination centers, then you're, you know, basically serving the Antichrist and evil and terrible parents. Not, not a bit of that. Parents are making their choices as under the Lord, and, and the ministry is designed to equip parents and support parents and, and encourage parents. And, uh, and I, I, I appreciate Christian influence in the public schools. You know, they're missionaries behind enemy lines in terms of students and teachers and anyone that's involved in, uh, in those situations. All right, so this is the question, and it's phrased here, who do people say the Son of Man is, but who do you say? Who do you say that I am? Notice the question in verse 13 is the Son of Man. The question in verse 15 is I. And they are equivalent statements. When Jesus says, who do the people say that the Son of Man is, he's referring to himself. There are even particular manuscripts that have the the I in there. Uh, and the Textus Receptus has it. Uh, New King James has it. Uh, other versions have it. I don't think it belongs, but I don't think it's necessarily wrong to have it there. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? See, and you can render it that way. Uh, it's just a matter of whether the, the pronoun meh is, uh, belongs in the original or not. Clearly it's there in verse 15, though. Who do you say that I am? This is the, this is the debate, and this is the contrast. Point two, two questions. These two questions centered on the identity of Jesus. These two questions centered on the identity of Jesus. On his identity. His very being. His very person. Who is he? It's a question with an infinite variety of answers. Because his being is infinite and eternal. And depending upon the scope of what it is you're developing, you can answer this countless different ways and to uh, an infinite detail. Hmm. All right. Kind of like the tongue-in-cheek that uh, Treebeard had in The Lord of the Rings novels, you know, a, a being as old as Treebeard, to have such a short, hasty name is doesn't make much sense because his story spans centuries. Well, think about Jesus Christ. His story spans eternity. From eternity past through all the eons of time. Now, think about your own identity. If I ask, who are you? You can give me a name, right? You can give me a first name. You can give me a, a first name and last name if you want to get into more detail. You can give me a first, middle, and last name if you want to give me a full formal um, title. I kind of specialize in middle names, actually. So a lot of you do your best to try to keep your middle name secret, but I, I usually worm it out of you at some point of time. Uh, it's not a requirement for salvation and that kind of thing. When I say salvation, it's not requirement for church membership, is what I meant to say. It's not requirement for salvation either, for that matter. But I have a lot of fun, especially with folks that uh, other people don't realize. Uh, they call them by, they don't even realize they're calling them by their middle name, but that's their middle name. Their first name is the one that nobody knows about, things like that. 
But even if I know your first name, your middle name, your last name, do I know you? I might know who you are, but is that the same as knowing you and the person? Who are you? Because your name is a label. But who you are is your character, is your, is your reputation, is your integrity, is your essence. So, uh, and, and identity is not just simply a label, not just simply a name, it, it is also a, uh, a function. You are what you are designed to be. Part of who you are is what he has made you to be. Part of your identity, part of my identity is our salvation in Christ. I am a member of the royal family of God. I am a child of God the Father. I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ as part of my identity. A lot of believers don't realize that, so they don't live like it. They're not walking in a manner consistent or worthy of the calling with which they've been called. Um, another aspect of your identity is your spiritual gift. What are you designed to do? What is your ministry? See, I, I, could, not, I could not imagine an identity other than the identity of a pastor-teacher. I just couldn't imagine another identity. Because that's who I am. That's what I am. That's what I'm designed to do. And if that ever ended, then take me home. There's no point in being here. See? So identity. Who is Jesus? Who is the Son of Man? And he, clearly from verse 14, there's a whole lot of confusion out there. <laughs> All right? None of them got it right. Some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. That is one of the prophets of old, one of the Old Testament prophets having returned. He is a prophet. He is a legitimate dispensation of Israel, prophet of Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. But he is more than a prophet. Islam would have him simply as a prophet, one of a crowd, and and uh, you know leading uh, the second greatest, leading up to. Muhammad, who was the ultimate. They had Jesus as the penultimate prophet and Muhammad as the ultimate prophet. And uh, they, of course, reject his deity and they reject um, so much else about, about Jesus. So let's talk about his identity. And he phrases it in two ways. He phrases it as the I am statement. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And as an English reader, the idea of who the people say that I am is kind of innocuous. It kind of, it kind of rolls off the tongue. You don't think about it very much. But put yourself now in a Jewish mentality in the first century with the sacredness of the Hebrew Scriptures, with the holiness of the name Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to pronounce it. We anglicize it different ways, but... Yahweh was unpronounceable. And it was so, they held it in such reverence, they would not pronounce it. If they came across it in their text, they wouldn't read Yahweh, they would read Adonai instead. They would see it in print, and they would pronounce Adonai. Alright? So, the idea of I am, when Moses, when, when Yahweh revealed the I am significance to Yahweh, to Moses, and he became the God of I am, the God of Moses that led them out of Egypt and, and made them a nation. This was a holy, holy, holy name. And so when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? That's significant. Absolutely significant. Who do the people say that I am? Who do, what do the people say about the Son of Man? 
And are they making the connection between the Son of Man and I Am? Are they making the connection between the Son of Man and Yahweh? And Messiah, or Christ, and Son of Man, and Son of David, and all these other titles. Because there are countless titles. And if you're confused on your Christology, there's problems. That's what he's settling here. So, he has the I am question. And I want to amplify this before we get to the Son of Man statement under point B. Let's expand on I am for a a little bit. Subpoint one. The specific identity of Jesus as the Christ. That he's not just Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus son of Joseph. He is Jesus as the Christ. The Christ. The specific identity of Jesus as the Messiah slash Christ. Messiah is a Hebrew word, Christ is a Greek word. Is non-negotiable. For him to be understood as the promised coming one. We're going to go through a lot of scriptures on this, but just get the point down on paper and you'll be able to chew on it during the week. The specific identity of Jesus as the Messiah Christ is non-negotiable for him to be understood as the promised coming one. He is the promised coming one. Remember, the story of Jesus Christ does not begin in the manger. The story of the Messiah does not begin during the Roman Empire. The story of the Messiah Christ goes back to the beginning. He was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. In his plan, the Father designed the plan to include the crucifixion of the sacrificial lamb prior to to any created being, prior to the angels, prior to man. We want to to understand this. All right. This is why Peter's answer is so correct. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ. Hamashiach is the Messiah in Hebrew, or Hakristos in Greek, the Anointed One. The Anointed One. That's what Messiah is, the Anointed One. Son of the Living God. Son of the living God. He is the second member of of deity. He is God the Son. The Word made flesh. Now, if we back up a little bit to chapter 11, we start to see some of these other passages, and it really helps us to understand the expectations of the Jewish people and even the Gentiles about the coming Messiah. See, the problem is, as, as English speakers, I think today, the term Messiah has become a synonym with a Savior. Right? And we think, oh, this is somebody's Messiah, right? Somebody's Savior. And Messiah is not a synonym for Savior. You know, we, we look, look at political leaders and, oh, here's the Republicans' Messiah. You know, here's a party that's in disarray or a Democrat Messiah. And we're fi- the Democrats are finally going to get the White House back after eight years. And who is their Messiah going to be? And they use Messiah as a term, equivalent term for Savior, and, they, and that's incorrect. Messiah, Mashach, is to smear with oil, to anoint with oil, to consecrate for a holy purpose. And that's what a Messiah is, is the consecrated one for God the Father's holy purpose. So whether you use the Hebrew Messiah or the Greek Christ, that's what it, that's what it re- references. 
In Matthew 11, John the baptizer is having a moment here in in prison, and he says to him, Are you the expected one? Are you the coming one? Or should we look for someone else? We want to recognize that by virtue of being the Christ, that he is expected, he is coming, he is the one that has been announced. Every book of the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah. Every book of Scripture, at this point, all 22 of them, you and I would think it's 39 of them in the English Old Testament, but all of the Hebrew Scriptures pointed ahead to Christ. That's why he condemned the Pharisees the way he did. He says, you search the Scriptures thinking that in them you have salvation, but it is the Scriptures that speak of me. So he has promised, he is coming. He is the promised coming one. And every believer... Every Old Testament believer is saved by grace through faith. I want to be very clear on this. If you walk out of here at 11 o'clock confused, then uh, that's your fault. I'm going to give you a chance to ask questions. Every Old Testament believer was saved like you and I are saved. By grace through faith. The difference is, is one of perspective. We have the hindsight salvation looking back to a past completed action on the cross. And by grace through faith, by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's true today, that was true for Adam and Eve, and every believer since Adam and Eve. It's always grace through faith. The difference is, is we are looking back to what's complete. They were looking forward to what was promised. Saved the same way we are. Alright? And we have more information than they had? Absolutely. But within the realm of the information they had, they were... Believing in the promises, the future coming of the promised one. And that's what we have here. Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? The idea of expectations, a promised, expected coming. Let's go to the woman of the well in John chapter 4. This woman that's so positive. Okay, she's living in a moral life, I grant you. But she's eager for truth. She's eager for truth. And so even when her adulteries are exposed, when she knows that she's face-to-face with a prophet, you know, why get mad? Why get embarrassed? Why, you know, not like you can lie to the guy. He's a prophet. So, okay, you're caught. You're busted. Deal with it. But then recognize, hey, how many, how many chances do you get to come face-to-face with a prophet? You know, you and I never get that chance to come face-to-face with a prophet to inquire of the Lord and get an immediate response back wouldn't that be great well so she gets exposed here and yet she's excited anyway she um, the woman said to him in verse 25 I know the Messiah is coming he who is called Christ when that one comes he will declare all things to us see he is the expected promised coming one and he was expected to be a teacher to make all things clear And notice what Jesus says to her. I am. Jesus said to her, the one speaking to you, I am. So what does she do? (laughs) She runs off and gets the town. She says, I I found the Christ. Verse 29, um, she runs into the city, says to the men, remember who the men are? 
her men, the men, come, see a man who has told me all the things that I have done. Meaning, all the things we have done. <laughs> yeah. She says, I, but remember how many men were involved here. Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. These might be prominent men in the city who don't exactly want, you know, those things to be public. This is not the Christ, is it? The expectation is, yes, this is. And uh, so they come and they believe. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans believed in him. And they even testify, he stays there two more days. Many more believe because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, verse 42, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So here we see the linking between Messiah, Christ, Teacher, the one who makes all things known, and then the salvation value of the redemption, the fact that he is the Savior. All right? Vital that we understand that. This was all a part of their expectation of the promised coming one. Now, think about it. You're saved. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then you happen to live in the generation where he appears. Right? It's kind of like you and I. We're, we're looking for the rapture. And it's coming, and it's coming, and it's coming. But wouldn't it be something to actually be alive in the generation in which it appears? Are you going to be ready for it when it appears? Okay? Yeah, I'm ready now. But think about it. How many believers do you know that are not ready for the rapture? They're not abiding in the word. They're not walking in the light. They're not living for the glory of Jesus Christ. They're, they're saved. They're redeemed. They will stand in glory at the judgment seat of Christ. But they will be, as First John 2.28 says, shrinking away from him in shame at his appearing. I think that there were a tremendous number of believers that were eager for the coming Christ and accepted him when they came face to face, like this Samaritan crowd. But then there were others that uh, were, were saved by grace through faith, believing the Messiah was coming, and yet so caught up in establishment life, temporal life, political life, the powers of politics, the legalism of Pharisaical Judaism, that when they came face to face, they didn't like what they saw. They, they were on the verge of losing their power. All right, the last example of this is in John chapter 11. You find it hard to believe that a believer in the first century could be truly born again, come face to face with Jesus of Nazareth, and, and reject him and say, no, you're not him. Do you find that hard to believe? I don't. We see it all the time today. People are born again believers in Jesus Christ with an opportunity to come to Bible class and come face to face with the Savior. And they've got better things to do. All right, chapter 11 and verse 27. Lazarus is dead. The sisters need encouragement. Your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. You know, she hadn't read Revelation chapter 20 yet, but she knew about uh, Daniel chapter 12. She knew about Old Testament resurrection concepts. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. That would make her more in line with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, at least, as far as her theology is concerned and then jesus says i am the resurrection and the zoe he who believed the anastasia and the zoe he who believes in me will live even if he dies everyone who lives and believes in me will never die do you believe this 
notice her response because this shows a tremendous doctrine, uh, doctrinal understanding on her part. She says, yes, Lord. In Greek, it's kurios, but in Hebrew, Adonai. With the recognition of Adonai's identification with Yahweh. Yes, Adonai. Yes, my Lord. Yes, Jehovah. Yes, Kurios, I have believed that you are the Christ, Christos Messiah, the Son of God. Recognizing that the Christ was not merely humanity, but God and man united together in one person forever. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. This is a tremendous statement of maturity on Martha's part, and she understands the issue. And she puts it all together right here. So the specific identity of Jesus as the Messiah Christ is non-negotiable. And this is where, I'm going to move on here to point two in a moment. But let's look at one more. It's not in my notes, but let's go to Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And I know other pastors and other Bible teachers teach Acts 2 a little bit different from how I teach it, but... Can't help it. I've got to teach what I'm convicted of and teach according to my understanding. If uh, the Lord wants to give me a different understanding, He's free to do that. But as of now, this is the understanding He has uh, permitted me to maintain. As you notice in Peter's sermon here, they think they're drunk. And uh, Peter says, no, we're not drunk. It's only the uh, third hour here. Um He says, this is that of which Joel spoke, and he cites the Old Testament scriptures. And then, after he cites the scriptures, he starts to preach it. And he starts to teach truth based upon not only what was revealed in the Old Testament, but what was witnessed in the life of Jesus Christ. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. Significant title. He's he's identifying him by his human name. But he's going to link that human name to the expectations, to the coming one, to the promises. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. The the purpose for miracles was not the gee whiz, look what he can do. It was the credentials, the testimony from the Father. A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, Jesus Christ did no miracle in his own power. God accomplished it through him. The filling and empowerment of God the Holy Spirit, same power that you and I have available for us today. This one, or this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So you can argue that the Jews crucified him. You can argue that the the Romans crucified him. You can argue that you and I crucified him. Every sinner that sinned crucified him. Or you can have an eternal perspective in terms of the divine program, plan and program of the ages, the eternal life council from eternity past. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Not just the plan, the plan and foreknowledge. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now this, it's interesting, is that they evidently had a knowledge of this. Uh, attested to you. And whether they were in town or out of town or not, the attestation went to the Jewish people, to the Jewish nation. And the people that are all assembled here in Pentecost are the, notice, 
devout Jews, if you glance up to verse 5, living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. These are devout men, men of devotion, men of godliness, men that have assembled in obedience to the law, coming together for Pentecost, coming together for their uh, obedience to the word of God. See. So put to death, verse 25, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. He faced the consequences. He endured the experience. He physically died. And yet in that realm of death, there was no power over him. He accepted the, the judgment, but he himself was not, was not subject to that power of death. He was not there based on what he'd earned or deserved. Impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He sits at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. goes on, uh, notice verse 27, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Verse 29, Peter continues, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. All right? Basically, let's, let's state the obvious. The, the prophecy about not decaying cannot apply to David. Because he died, he's buried, we still have his tomb. He is long decayed a thousand years later. So what was this passage talking about? It wasn't talking about David. It was talking about the son of David, talking about the greater son of David. And so because he has a, he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter is able to give an exposition of an Old Testament passage, bring it into a New Testament application and give the uh, encouragement to these Jewish believers. Now, I want you to notice this. They have an understanding of the coming expected one, but they have not yet connected that expected coming one with Jesus of Nazareth. Vital that you, you see this here in this chapter. So this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So, now that we have seen the resurrection, now that we have seen the messianic prophecies fulfilled, we can testify not to a coming Messiah, but we can identify the Messiah who came and fulfilled that. In other words, you're believing, your believers looking forward, stop looking forward. Look what was accomplished. So, therefore, to which we are all witnesses, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you have both seen in, in her, which you both see in here, and uh, describing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. I think the key here is verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain. Please, please, underline that or put a star by it or remember it. This is not a Billy Graham altar call, come to Jesus salvation message. Because that's to the whole world. Jew, Gentile alike, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, so on and so forth. This is the specific message to all Israel. Let all the house of Israel know. That is, the stewards that have now had their stewardship revoked. Let the stewards know 
the former stewards know that the one they were anticipating has come and has been identified, and they must make that identification. It is non-negotiable. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Who? This Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 36, I think, explains the whole chapter. The recognition that Israel, the stewards, the Old Testament stewards, looking forward to the coming Messiah, they have to connect their expectations of the coming one with Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified and who rose again on the third day. They have to make that identification. If they do, we'll look at the result here in a moment, um, they're ushered into the church, they become church-age saints, part of the, uh, the, the new stewardship of the church that began here with the outpouring of the Spirit in uh, verse 2. If they don't, what happens to them? What happens? There's a, a, a Jewish believer, but he's, he's, he's sold out to the Pharisees. He knows the Pharisees have the truth. His religious leaders told him that uh, this Jesus guy was a heretic and he was a criminal that died on the cross. And so he's still looking for the coming Christ. He's still looking for the coming Christ. What happens to him? He's an Old Testament saint. He's going to die. He's going to die and go to heaven? He will die and go to heaven, yeah. He's not going to lose his salvation. Absolutely not. Eternal security is eternal security. Always has been, always will be. However, when he arrives in glory, it will be as a member of the house of Israel and not a part of the bride. Absolutely. Not a part of the bride. Then when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? You know, pierced to the heart, remembering you're the steward, or you used to be the steward. You were looking for the coming Christ, and you crucified him when he got here. Now what do we do? Okay. Repent. Okay. Have a change of thinking. Adjust your thinking, adjust your understanding so that you recognize that the one you were expecting is coming is the one you crucified. Change your thinking with respect to the one you crucified and identify Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom you crucified, as Lord and Christ. Repent. Okay? Now, if you go to the streets of Austin today and start grabbing people off the street and telling them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins... You are not giving a grace gospel for church-age saints in our present dispensation. And yet, some people take Acts 2.37 or Acts 2.38 as a gospel imperative. Repent, change your attitude, metanoeo, change your thinking, and be baptized. Be baptized. Alright, undertake this ritual. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have a change of thinking. Publicly testify to your understanding. Take part in the ritual so that 
to all your Jewish friends and family in the world at large, you are testifying of your identification with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Identify with the body of Christ, and you will be ushered into the body of Christ. You will receive the Holy Spirit. All right, now we understand that this uh, cannot take place today. Today, there's, nobody, there's no one left alive on the planet today that got saved before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All right? Anybody who's saved today is saved after the fact, looking back to the finished work and believing in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as the sacrifice for their sins. So anybody saved today are saved, and at the moment of salvation, they're, they're baptized by the Holy Spirit, ushered into the body of Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit from the moment of your salvation. Everybody on the planet today, that's true. Not so for those that were saved prior to the cross. And they received the Holy Spirit at different times through the book of Acts. The upper room was the Jewish disciples there and the apostles in Acts chapter 2. These other guys later on in Acts chapter 2. Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10. Another crowd of Jews in Ephesus in Acts chapter 18. And at different stages, Old Testament believers were matriculated into the church. And they received the Holy Spirit when they became New Testament believers. It was only possible in that one generation. Not possible since that time. So, if you ever have any Pentecostal friends that want to try to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is received as a secondary work of grace after salvation and blah, 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 they're, they're misapplying the unique conditions of this transition from the stewardship of Israel to the stewardship of the church. So, repent and be baptized is the identification with Jesus of Nazareth and has nothing to do with uh, an unbeliever receiving eternal life and uh, becoming a child of God by faith. They've already done that. They, though, need to identify with Christ and become ushered into the church. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified, kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. There's a unique gospel call. If you try to put this into a Billy Graham street evangelism context, forget that. You understand that this perverse generation is the generation that crucified him. It's the generation that's wrapped up in their legalism. It's the generation that would, that would um, tithe mint and cumin and dill and then neglect their parents. It's the, it's the Pharisees that would, that would sail to the ends of the earth to make one disciple and then turn him into twice the son of hell that he is. And uh, this perverse generation and their religious legalism actually hinders the recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. When it says, be saved from this perverse generation, that is to escape from the false Jewish leaders that said that Jesus was a heretic and a blasphemer. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. Notice, they didn't believe. He didn't tell them to believe. He told them to repent and be baptized. And uh, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added 3,000 souls. That unique language in, in adding souls doesn't describe a conversion of people that went from spiritually dead to spiritually alive with uh, eternal life in Christ. It described the church that was being multiplied. Old Testament believers were being ushered 
into the church. The addition of souls. All right. We will, let's get a look at the prophet, and then that's 11 o'clock. So the specific identity of Jesus as the Messiah Christ is non-negotiable. There were other expectations as well. And I list them for you in our points two and three. The expected prophet was another debate. Was the expected Moses-like prophet to be identified with the Elijah forerunner or with the Messiah Christ? They had a lot of confusion about that. The expected prophet was another debate. And next week we'll take the time, we'll, we'll go back to Deuteronomy, we'll show you the message of Moses that said another prophet is on the way. The expected prophet was another debate. Was the expected Moses-like prophet to be identified with the Elijah forerunner or with the Messiah Christ? And there were some that held that he was the Elijah forerunner. That when uh, Moses said another prophet is coming, that and then uh, Isaiah and Malachi spoke of Elijah the prophet coming as a forerunner, there was the belief that, uh, that Elijah forerunner was the same as the prophet that Moses was talking about. Others said no, that the prophet Moses was talking about was the Messiah, was the Christ. Okay, now, and they turned out to be right. We know that now, but at the time, did they have any way to know that? Was it was it exactly clear at the time? I don't believe it was. So we'll spend some time on those passages, uh, John chapter one, because when John the Baptist started ministering and baptizing, and he's dressed in camel's hair and he's doing all this stuff, they went out to find out who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And he said, Nope, nope, nope. Anyway, we'll uh, come back to this next week. I am out of time. Any questions? I said I'd give you a chance for questions. How were Old Testament believers saved? They were saved by grace through faith. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Almost nobody. Uh, prophets. Uh, judges, uh, godly kings, priests, but yes, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was, was almost nobody. Very, very infrequently was the Holy Spirit given. And not only was the Holy Spirit given, but then the Holy Spirit would depart. Uh, Samson, in you know, the phrase, the Spirit of God came upon Samson, and then the Spirit of God would depart. So, uh, Old Testament uh, pneumatology, Old Testament indwelling of the Holy Spirit was significantly different than what you and I enjoy today. Absolutely different. Um, yes and no. In some cases, the empowerment provided a charismatic power uh, for prophetic utterance or for, you know, super strength or things like that. Um, we are accustomed to the Holy Spirit's power that guides us in the truth and that uh, that uh, empowers our spiritual giftedness. They didn't have spiritual giftedness, so they didn't need Holy Spirit power to empower that spiritual giftedness. So some similarities, but some differences. Uh, I would, yeah, they would know that they had it. They would know what it was when they experienced it. 
I would think that as the Holy Spirit came upon a prophet, that the prophet would be led to understand that it was the Holy Spirit upon him. Yeah. Would never have it in their entire lives. That's right. Yeah. Radley, you had a question? Yes, they were taught about the Holy Spirit. Old Testament passages speak of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God brooded over the surface of the deep. They understood Spirit. Job said, do not take your Spirit from me. Um, they understood the Spirit. And they, they addressed the Spirit when they knew that it was working. <laughs> well, they had grace provision. You know, the Father provides. And He provides uh, in, in every test. He never tests us beyond our ability to bear. But... He did not provide through an indwelling empowerment like he does for us. And that's what I think about Job. Job faced his testing and did not have in the indwelling empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And, and that just adds another dimension to his testing and his, his endurance and his victory, given that he endured so much without even having the uh, empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. See. Yes, ma'am. Uh huh. Right. They had all the the visible teaching of the animal sacrifices to teach the doctrine. He didn't have the tabernacle or temple or the Levitical religious system. No. He had the verbal promises of God in the patriarchal age. He had the uh, the oral testimony of the patriarchs, Ham, Shem, and Japheth still being alive. He had um, he had the verbal revelation. I, I expect that angels walked the earth. I expect that uh, other prophets were lifted up. He himself being a prophet, uh, but they did not have written scriptures until Moses. Not even Abraham. Abraham didn't have written scriptures. There were no written scriptures until until Moses, so far as we know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll pick up more on this next week, and uh, we'll see Peter's shining moment, and uh, and then uh, we'll understand what the church is. Because remember, church is a mystery. Church is not revealed until the church is brought into existence. So when Jesus says, Upon this rock I will build my church, what were these guys supposed to think? Church? What's that? Okay. Don't don't allow your hindsight to think, Oh, I know what that means. Upon this rock I will build my church. He's talking about the beginning of the church age at Pentecost. No, that's a mystery. Unrevealed. What was he talking about when he said, Upon this rock I will build my assembly? And what, how would they take it? How would they take it? I know how we take it, because we have hindsight. They didn't. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this class. And I thank you for Bible students that think, and they put things together, and they, they don't just swallow something, hook, line, and sinker, because Pastor Bob said so, but they want to put Scripture together with Scripture and believe it because your truth communicates truth. And I thank you for that. And Father, uh, I pray that you would always encourage that, maintain that, strengthen that, and, uh, and be at work in every disciple of yours that uh, fellowships in this lampstand.
I thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.